Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. Experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the Event Horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And, and with us today, uh, Lynn Barker, author and musician. Welcome to the show, Lynn. Thank you so much. Uh, welcome from uh, stormy New Mexico, where we are having our monsoon season, so who knows when the lightning is going to strike. Oh, uh, we'll, ask, we'll ask Merlin to behave. Hot and yes, sticky. Yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> So you have a new book out, um, and and there's an interesting history to the book. But let me just read the uh, the, the the blurb: Futurus Rex by Lynn Barker and DC Fontana. In this, the last published work to which famous Star Trek writer, the late DC Fontana, contributes, we are in a far future Britain, which the long ago fire floods of war have rendered a semi wasteland. Deep in a hidden cave, long dormant, activating mechanisms begin to work on a high-tech sarcophagus, awaking a strong male body, scarred by battle. Who is it? <laughs> we'll find out. And my, my blurb was Star Wars, Robin Hood, Techno Mages, High Enchantment, everything except boring. Uh, I when we love that. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, you can use that for a cover if you want to. <laughs> Uh, Dorothy's widower, Denny, Dennis Skotak, loved that, too. He thought, oh, that's wonderful. That's exactly what... It's it's everything in the kitchen sink, but hopefully put together quite well. <laughs> so so how did this book come about? It, it, I heard something about it was going to be a movie script? Well, no, it's... Um, it's a long story. I'll try to make it relatively short. Um, Dorothy and I had a friend, a very talented uh, artist and writer named Bud Lewis, who drew a lot of wonderful um, comic books and during uh, the 80s and 70s. And he wanted to make a story about the return of Arthur into a graphic novel, but he thought, well, wait a minute, it would make a script. So he brought it to Dorothy and then I joined the party and he had the basic story and the characters were um, his names you know we used the names and uh, we made it into a script in the 80s written by the three of us and we put it out there and it did get some good reactions but everybody at that time thought it would be way too expensive CGI wise (laughs) because yeah then CGI was not what it is today and we do have at least one creature character who would be up in your face that we did not want to have animated uh, cartoonishly. 
we wanted it to look good. And uh, they, they did too, people, producers reading it, and they say, it's just too expensive. We can't do this now. And so we got that a lot. And so we decided to just shelve it for then. And then Dorothy went on teaching at AFI. I went on to doing other things. Bud kind of disappeared on us. We didn't know where he went. We later found out he went to the Pacific Northwest. But Dorothy and I got busy on other things. And then, uh, so sadly, in 2014, we heard that Bud had died. And uh, yeah, and uh, not in pleasant circumstances. I guess he was quite ill and we did not know. Uh, You know, we didn't have enough uh, friends in common to let us know. So we were sad about that. And then we thought, well, gosh, his wonderful stuff that he brought to us, we should, we have the script, let's write a novel. You know, let's just make it live. And so we started working on an outline from the script for a novel. And then Dorothy had her things, I had my things, and it just kind of didn't get shelved, but it only got written a little bit at a time. And um, finally, um, we worked on it a little more, and she still had her AFI students to pay attention to, uh, American Film Institute, for those who don't know what the heck I'm talking about. She taught uh, screenwriting at AFI. So she was busy with that. I was busy with stuff. And we kind of, you know, wrote a little here and there, and then we discuss it. But when she got ill, and then after her death in 2019, I decided, no, I'm going to finish this book. And I did. Great. So that's the story. Um, we had written the outline, and she had written a section. I had written a section. We had traded it and made notes on each other's sections <laughs> and gone back. And uh, we were we were you know into it it wasn't just the introduction or something so i uh i went back and tweaked tweaked and finished it and um for her and for him it's dedicated to both of them oh that's lovely it's a long story but interesting <coughs> but the cover art which i love it's a black and white cover that is bud's artwork and i do credit him in the book cover art by bud lewis it's very striking it is yeah some people don't see the king until they look at it for a while. They see a white blob, and um, they keep looking at it. Oh, there's a king with a crown in there. Yeah, okay. The once and future himself. Yeah. And Miss puts the future in the once and future king. Yeah. We, so- we bring him back in a far future land that really needs him. And the book has a lot of kick-butt women characters who are wonderful and some fun guys and... A lot of action, a lot of cool weaponry. And not a uh, dragon. Yeah, and a, a, no, <laughs> yes, a, a sort of looks like a dragon. His, his feathers resemble scales, but it, they are feathers. He has many small wings. His name is Yaustus. And uh, he has a big, long neck with big, expressive eyes that change colors with his mood. And he's very smart. He's not, you know, just a creature out here flying around and breathing fire. He's a a representative of the enchantment, which is a hidden land that uh, will help out our heroes. Uh, People from the enchantment will help them out. But Yaustus doesn't like to be called a dragon at all. None of his kind. They are called thweens, T-H-W-E-E-N-S. And they're a, they're a type of creature that sadly do resemble dragons, but absolutely do not want to be called dragons. Never call them a dragon. Yeah, don't call them a dragon. That'll, <laughs> that'll get you smacked. Now, I like the uh, yeah. 
I, I like the the uh, the the meeting in the Outlands in the uh, uh, in the tavern where uh, oh yes, that, like yeah. all all the characters somehow managed to meet up there in the same place at the same time. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you know, the extremely... first five chapters, they're all, you know, here's, here's a story about somebody here, and then there's somebody way over there, and, you know, and they all converge mm-hmm. in this one place. Yeah, they, there's a lot of tavern visiting, because yeah. this is a, yeah, it's a little um, medieval um, in uh, locale in that uh, you have your crafters, you have your uh, farmers, you have, you know, your guys in a small village kind of thing and, and you then have they your, all yeah and you have your bards There's oh a lot yeah a lot yeah. of songs in oh this. yeah our lead lady aliena is um a song sayer and she makes her living traveling around uh, the known world uh singing her songs about historical characters and uh inspiration and then once in a while sneaking a one in that's a little rebellious because um this world is ruled by techno wizards and the queen or head magician, the grand magician, is named Corian, and she is a real piece of work. She is. <laughs> That's polite. She, yeah, she's. Uh, you don't want to cross her, and she's got her reasons. So I don't want to tell too much because it'll give away relationships and things. But yeah, they do. They do kick butt in the tavern. Yeah, they do a lot of of that, and they're a group of uh, people called foresters who are sort of Robin Hoodish, especially their leader. And uh, he has had to live a life he does not want to live and be in charge of um, a manor house. And he doesn't like it. But uh, he and his foresters have always been out there and they will write again in the book. Well, that sounds like a sequel hook to me. Oh, it's well, there. Yeah. um, Well, here's the deal. I did not want to write it as a sequel, you know, as a series, book series. I want to see, mm-hmm. hopefully people will like it, but Dorothy and I, we both together, wrote two outlines for sequels. So her hand is still in the sequel possibilities. Oh, oh that's um, so neat. makes me happy, you know? Yes, yes. Oh, that her is hand neat. is in the sequels. Yeah, we sat down and talked about it and said, well, whether we make a movie out of this or we do books, let's figure out where it could go from here. And there are two sequels that are at least roughly outlined that I could take from there. So hopefully people like it and we can go on. These um, characters are fun. They're, it's a fun read. It's not going to break any incredible fiction ground. Or Dorothy didn't write like that anyway. She wrote about good characters and good stories and interesting intrigue and action that works and uh well this is why this is why her star trek episodes are amongst the most beloved yeah yes you do you care about the characters so much and um we've got a lot of them i will admit there are a lot of characters so we can't fully develop every character but maybe in the sequels they will all have more to do but (laughs) uh our leads we really really care about and uh, we hope people like them we could almost have a song sayer album out of it too. Well, oh, oh yeah, here, the song. Here we go. Um, I used Karen Wilson's "Star to Steer By," which is um, yes, a I noticed yes. that. I'm going. Oh, yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. I know well, this we song. both wanted. Yeah, Dorothy and I wanted to do that. It fits the. It's a rebel song. Oh, it's it about sure rebels and the, and the suffering they go through, and uh, to to earn a free man's life. 
And it was perfect for our song singer to sing. Of course, every time she sings a rebellious song, she's in trouble. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, when she sings Sardis Dearby and a couple of others, she's, uh, you know, she's banned from the area and must run. But uh, it's a beautiful song. And Karen and I sing it. We've sung it before I do the harmony. And uh, maybe we can go to a convention and sing it again. <laughs> that would be great. But with her permission, it's also accredited in the back of the book as being her song. Um, you know, she said, oh, yes, please use it. So it fit um, the story quite well. So we put it in there. Oh, one way or another, I'm going to make sure that song gets played after the interview. <laughs> oh, good grief. <laughs> well, there, well, I won't be singing on it, I think, but she has she it recorded will. by herself, I know, somewhere. Yep. Oh, believe uh, me, I have all the early filk discs. I could grab my, my grubby little mitts on. In fact, I still have Concord One. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> and uh, with, oh, you, with you and Miss Dorothy, and yeah. that may get played today, too. Oh, goodness, that that's amazing. Well, I'll have to stay on and listen. Um. But yeah, Dorothy and I had a had a weird, you know, vibe on singing. Oh, let me tell you how we started doing Filk. Would that be interesting to you? Absolutely. Okay. Well, we um, we had heard other people singing at conventions, and we thought, well, we can certainly write, and we can sort of sing. So let's do this. Hello. Hello. Oh goodness, everything went off on my screen. Uh, there you are. Hello. Okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, I thought we were having a, another lightning storm. But we heard uh, these people doing this, and there was an old Battlestar Galactica movie. Not the new one. I'm not dissing the whole new series. That's not what I'm talking about. There was an old movie with Lauren Green, and mm-hmm. it was an old, yeah. It, it was, was 1978. Bad. Yeah, it was not good. Oh, and, come on. Um, we loved it. We loved it. It was, you know, cute uh, the, guys. The original? And... Not, I'm not talking the new one. Yeah, oh, well, it was, okay. it was... Listen, I told those actors to their faces, cute cute guys, fast spaceships, what could be bad? Well, everything has fans, and I I don't want to diss any fans, but we just thought that it could have been done better or something. Oh, maybe. So we wrote wrote this song, um, kind of making fun of it, but using frack and other things, because frack (laughs) then, that's the first time you heard it. So we would, um, we would wrote a song about that. I think that, I think, I'm pretty sure that was our first Filk song that we wrote. And uh, it really caught on, and we just oh, we'll do more of those. We'll just we'll just do more of those. So we kept uh, doing songs that were tributes uh, to things we did like, uh, mostly mostly movies and uh, television. We didn't really knock any books or, or laud any books. Eh, what do you did, What do you two know about TV? <laughs> Well, she knew a lot more about King Arthur than I did. I, I think the Once and Future King was my big King Arthur thing. I didn't read T.H. Uh, White. I didn't read a lot of Arthur till we started writing the book, and then I read a lot more stuff. Yeah, I'll bet. But uh, but we uh, we did that, and we everybody seemed to like it, and um, so we just kept writing them. And some were some were pro, some were con, and all of them were fun though. Good. But she Dorothy could sing. She was with in a choir when she was. Uh, uh, you know, younger, and I think in college, or it might have been high school. But the problem was, when I would go off into harmony, she'd go right off with me. So uh, I couldn't do harmony most of the time with her, because she'd end up singing it with me. So but we just kind of kept it on the melody most of the time. But she tried so hard on a couple of things. It's like, I think you're still singing my part, Dorothy. But she really, you know, we, we didn't do that much. We mostly just did the, the, the you know, lead. 
the unison. Yes, exactly. Your harmony was in your performance, in your uh, guitar work. Yeah, we um, we did the best we could. That wasn't our, you know, that wasn't our main thing. I was always singing myself, and I was with a group in high school and a group in college, and always played guitar and singing. Like I'm an old filky, mm-hmm. folky, folky that became a filky. Um, yeah, it's a know, fine we, line. Yeah, it's a it's a very thin line. Yes. <laughs> But we enjoyed doing that, too. So, yeah, if you dig anything out, I'll get a kick out of listening to it. <laughs> I'll let you know. So your uh, your background includes a lot of television work. You worked for, yeah. you worked for CBS, mm-hmm. uh, CBS Story uh, Network Story Department for, mm-hmm. for years and, and before yeah. writing scripts for the 80s reboot of The Twilight Zone. Uh, mm-hmm. and you, you you wrote for you wrote for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Were you in the pool, or you wrote scripts? Oh no! Uh, well, that's a that's a weird story. Uh, Daniel Moran and I went in to pitch together, and we had several different stories, some together, some separately, and we you know we would have written them together. And uh, the one we sold was one that Dan worked on, and I tweaked a little, but it's mostly his. So we sold the story, and we thought we were going to be doing the script. And we're like sitting around at home thinking about how we're going to do the script. And then somebody else uh, decided to just buy the story and someone on staff there decided they would write the script. Hmm. So basically we sold the story. Hmm. Which one was uh, it? That gives gives us a credit on Deep Space Nine. But it was, um, you know, you're never that happy. They take things away from you in Hollywood all the time. (laughs) Everybody out there knows that. Yeah, there's a reason I'm as you know, at the um, arm's length that I am. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everybody knows. But um, I'll try to be brief here, too. I started in television news in uh, San Francisco, being an associate producer at KRON, which is the NBC affiliate. Mm-hmm. And I got tired of hard news. I, I came down to L.A. to visit somebody who was involved in the entertainment industry, and they took me to a set. Remember this show, McMillan and Wife? Oh, yes. Sure. Oh, yes. Okay, yeah, Rod. Yeah, yeah, those... Um, those people. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I went to the set and I got hooked on, I didn't want to be an actress for God's sake, but I wanted to write it or produce it or have something to do with it. So I decided that's what I really want to do and came down to LA from San Francisco after three years. This is right after college for me. Um, and uh, just did a bunch of temp work. And that's how I met Dorothy. You might want to hear that. Um, I wrote her a letter because I wanted the advice of a really good female writer and I loved her work and I thought how in the world did she get to write stuff that wasn't some girly thing that they were allowing women to write in those days so um, I uh, wrote her a letter and on cron stationery so I guess it looked a little more formal <laughs> and I thought I'm, well, I'm not going to hear any you know I'm asking her for tips you know how, what do I do and I thought, I'm not going to hear. And uh, a week later, the phone rings, and it's her. Yeah. And wow. I, I do write good letters. but <laughs> she wrote, And she said, do I have some tips for you? And I thought, yeah, I bet you do. And she said, why don't you meet me at Lucy's El Adobe across the street from Paramount, and we'll have dinner. And I, my, after I dropped, you know, pulled my mouth up off the floor, uh, she, uh, yeah, okay, thank you. And I went, and uh, we killed a bottle of wine and ate a lot of Mexican food, and the rest is a forty-six-year friendship history. 
that that is a great story. That's a great <laughs> is, story. Yeah. And that is just well, nature, isn't it? She's she's there she, for you. I guess it's something I said. She, I didn't. I wasn't. I wasn't solicitous in that. You know, I didn't jump all up and down all over everything she wrote. I just said, I love your work and I admire your spunk and I admire your ability to to crawl that ladder where it's so difficult. And uh, I guess she liked that. And I just said, I just don't know what to do. I don't want to be in hard news anymore. And um, she just liked that. And we talked, oh my God, we talked that night, I remember about uh, movies we liked and, and we talked about Trek and we talked about everything. And we realized, I think this person could be a really good friend. And we didn't get that drunk, so it wasn't that that was... Uh-huh, <laughs> right. No, this, this wasn't was, in yeah, Vino Veritas. It yeah, was, it was just serious um, talking. And I remember um, she said to me, well, you know, she said, in case you don't know what I look like, I don't look like the pictures you've seen of me. I'll be wearing a badge, a convention badge that's... Um, got a picture of a um, flying horse on it. And I thought, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even know what a, well, you know, I didn't know about science fiction conventions at that point. So I thought, okay. So here comes this woman, and she did vaguely look like what I'd seen. Uh, I think I'd seen a picture of her with blonde hair, which happened once in her life, but she went away from that. So I kind of thought that was her, and then I saw this giant name tag that was you know beautifully done with a flying horse and I well I guess that's her so it was just um amazing and it just never ended you know there was always something we were doing together that's that's great I I've met DC Fontana I think only one or two times and it's basically it was a high and that was it (laughs) uh yeah I know she had a lot. She had a, a great many friends in the circles that I traveled with, but I, I never, I never got to speak with her for more than like one, one or two words. Yeah, well, she usually, whenever she went to a convention, was on a panel and had to hurry and get to it, or you know, she would uh, sign some autographs or something. But she never wanted to be curt to anybody. I know she was always very friendly. Um, she had some fans following her around, and and I remember being with her and. They wouldn't go away, so we had to run into an elevator once. <laughs> and wow. there was they were sweet, and she'd already spoken to them. You know, she'd already completely spoken to them a while. But there was one fellow who um, just really was insistent of sticking to her like glue. So um, we went into an elevator and, and escaped for <laughs> for a while. But she loved her fans and everybody that that read and watched. Trek and her other stuff. She wrote a lot of westerns before mm-hmm. she ever well, wrote. Westerns uh, were very big then. Big, right? Yeah, Bonanza and, uh, you know, Big Valley and, Smoke, and, all, and, and all that. Yeah. And then also The Lieutenant, which was Roddenberry's uh, military series that she wrote on uh, as well. And Nichelle, I believe Nichelle Nichols was an actress in, in The Lieutenant. Yeah, there's picture, uh, there are pictures have yeah, come out recently picture, of that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, it's all, all this interweaving of people meeting on different things and coming together, as it always is. Leonard was, uh, Nimoy did some of Roddenberry's earlier work as well. And Leonard was on Twilight, so the old. I'm not that old. I didn't write for the Rod Serling Twilight. No, I don't think any of us. Are that it's old. the the mid '80s version. But 
um, Leonard was on some Twilight Zones, yes, and I, know. I believe maybe mm-hmm. an Alfred Hitchcock or something, and that's where he got noticed, you know, in the beginning of television, and then uh, Gene remembered him and everything, and it, all the rest is history. But yeah, Dorothy was always busy at conventions, but she always wanted to talk to people, and if they approached her when she could talk, she would talk. Sure. So um, people think she's we, quiet until suddenly she's not. Yeah, and always answered every question asked um, in a panel or anything. Sometimes the the answer wasn't what people wanted to hear. Well, that's they had a pre yeah they had a preconception or something of what she was going to say, and that wasn't it. <laughs> well, a lot of people have preconceived ideas as to how the industry works as well. You know, they don't understand oh, yeah. that it's it's uh, it's not this tight knit, well oiled machine. <laughs> <laughs> they wish it is. No. <laughs> it is basically a bunch of. It's basically a, a few hundred thousand parts flying in loose formation. Uh, mm-hmm. Some and some of the parts are trying to kill the other parts. It's not so much a not so much an asteroid as a ball pit, you know. Yeah. Oh God! Very good, you guys. Yeah, that's that's it. Oh, uh, my Twilight Zones. Yeah, I had written a little show called Whiz Kids, which is the the dawn oh, of computers. Yeah, it was a bunch that. of high school kids. Yeah, the dawn of computers. I mean, oh, my God, the big barreled things, you know, with the screen in the front. Oh, my God. Uh, and it was about their um, involvement in solving crimes or doing, you know, I wrote one of those. And then when uh, some of the same producers and showrunners decided to do the 80s version of The Twilight Zone, they brought some of their writers with them. And that was me. Uh, I wasn't on staff. I don't think anybody was on staff. At that time, everybody was hired as a freelancer. So they had a lot of episodes and a lot of different writers got to write them. But um, shows being written by just a few people uh, become very insular and they all seem alike. So we, you know, they tried to hire a bunch of different people. But I wrote three of them, and uh, they were all approved by the network, but only two of them got filmed, so got shot. So um, I was proud of those. They came out quite well. One of them had Helen Mirren in it. Ooh. Dame Helen, yeah. She was in my Dead Woman's Shoes episode, which was an adaptation or my version of Dead Man's Shoes. I think that was a Beaumont Hmm. Anyway, I can't remember what the original. Oh, I think was a, that was creepy as hell. Yeah. That was wonderful. Yeah, the, that yeah, guy uh, guy finds finds these um, kind of weird looking patent leather shoes. <laughs> the guy in the original version in the sixties mm-hmm. zone, and uh, they said, "Well, what if it was women? Why don't you write this?" So of course, I said, "Okay, well, they're going to be stilettos, and some poor woman in thrift store is going to find them." And that poor woman from a thrift store was Helen Mirren. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Now, you can still, uh, there's a, some several DVDs out of that entire series, and it's in there. Oh, there are hidden treasures all through that. that they, definitely. Version. And she was a prize. She was a wonderful, such a broad. I love that woman. She was so great on set and so funny and so inquiring about what I, the writer, thought about the character. Not just the director, Peter Medak, who wasn't nobody, uh, for sure, but she wanted to know, of course, what he wanted to do, but she asked me about the character I wrote. Not every and actor we, would do that. 
yeah, well, she's a, you know, a good person. And she thought I'm, uh, she wanted to get into the head of this woman who had a poor little person who had found these shoes and put them on and been possessed by somebody who really had their shit together. And (laughs) I don't know if I can say that, but anyway, bleep it. But she um, just really got to play two parts because she played the little meek person who found the shoes and then the woman, the socialite kind of woman who uh, wore them later. And uh, she had a great time and I've on and off kept in touch with her. Um, I have some autographed pictures by uh, from that, from her. And whenever I ran into her later on when I was a entertainment journalist, which was my reincarnation of myself in the last 20 years of my life uh, I'd run into her and we'd go to the side and talk so wonderful woman very very talented yeah wow (laughs) (laughs) yeah I've got a million stories in the naked city here (laughs) put your clothes on and tell us some more yeah so when did you when Uh, did you start going to conventions uh, when am I going to start going to conventions when when did Uh, you start when did you start You've oh, when did I? Well, Dorothy took me to the first one. Uh-huh. Uh, cuz I didn't even know they existed and I can't, it was in LA and I I cannot remember. I think it was about 1973 or 4. I met her in uh March 73. Mm-hmm. As a tiny little 20 something. Oh my god. Uh and then she took me to this one convention, the one I mentioned that I, you know, was put in a costume and stuck on a stage and I was I, like, what am I, I have I'm a in suspicion. a fashion? I have a suspicion it might have been Equicon. Well, it be, might have been one of the Equicons, yeah, the yeah, earlier ones. Because they had they had big fashion shows at those. Yeah, and someone would design, and then they would win a prize yeah. for designing it and execute the costume. Yeah, yeah, they, and uh, yeah, that was the first one. And I thought, oh boy, these people like the things I like, and oh boy, these people knew? are really fun. And uh, I didn't know these things existed, so you know, obviously, we went to a lot of them. And as I started writing uh, more, then I'd be on panels too. And we'd go as guests and just have fun. We did. Uh, if you look at the uh, book, has a Facebook page. It is called "Return to the Enchantment," and the two Ooh, is uh-huh. a numeral two. And on that page, we have posted some of the amazing photos of Dorothy and I, or just Dorothy from back in the day, and some are our costumes. And we, uh, before it was called cosplay, it was just the masquerade, if you remember, Susan. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Just the customers. masquerade. We were customers. Yeah, costume competition or masquerade. And um, we won most beautiful for Floramel of Amber, Past and Future at, I think it was Equicon 78. So that picture is posted on the book's uh, website, uh, not website, um, Facebook page. And there's some other ones that people that are from my personal collection or her widower Denny's personal collection uh, that nobody's seen before. So go visit the page. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll make sure that's on the on uh, the uh, show show page when when we uh, put it up on uh, sci-fi dot radio. Yeah, with, with details as, well, as to the we uh, will plug you on the, the we will definitely plug uh, you guys on. <laughs> On our uh, Facebook page as well. I don't run it, but I know the people who do. So, <laughs> very cool. 
Yeah, I don't know. I I went through a lot of things. The um, I my mentors kind of ran out on in Hollywood. People that knew me, knew my work, were hiring me. One of them died. One of them became a, a screenwriter. So you know, a movie writer wasn't interested in running shows anymore. So it was hard to get um, any more work in television. I did sell a screenplay, and we went through hell trying to get it made. It was an indie, and uh, at one time, Curtis Harrington. Remember the old. Uh, uh, you know, director Curtis Harrington was going to direct it, and uh, it was going to have Dennis Hopper in it. Ooh. Oh, uh-huh. and yeah, it's it was a a supernatural uh, film noir kind of thing that I wrote, and it was great. And then it just fell apart. All the money, you know, two or three <sighs> different groups of monetizing entities bailed. So uh, yeah, we never got it made. And I kept the publishing rights, so I'm going to tackle that one, I think, soon. What is it? And turn it into a a novel. Yeah. Why not? Because I can't can't resell the script, um, you know, but I I kept the publishing rights. And uh, I got paid. It just never got made. So that was disappointing. Yeah, never never, uh, disrespect that idea. I think uh, Ray Bradbury was said to have put, you know, all his kids through college on options for the uh, Martian Chronicles. (laughs) Don't, wouldn't the yeah. option expire after if they if the film isn't produced Depen- after like five years? Well, it depends or? depends what their contract was. Some, sometimes yeah, they're not options. Turnaround, turnaround rights. I, yeah, I didn't have. It wasn't a very good contract. <laughs> oh, okay. But anyway, uh, I did keep the publishing rights, so I'm I'm just um, working on that. That's one thing I'm working on is trying to turn that into you know, a novel. So we'll see. But after all of that and a lot of um, different really circumstances, I decided to, how can I reinvent myself? So I'm a journalism major. I went to um, UNM here in New Mexico under Tony Hillerman, the famous mm. Navajo mystery writer. Yeah. He was my my professor and my mentor. Oh, he was wow, amazing. really? How fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm, I'm, uh, you know, friendly with his, I don't know her, you know, super well, not a buddy, but I know his daughter, Anne, who's picked up his work since he died and done a great job. And um, I see her when she's in town and stuff. So anyway, I um, went ahead and put my two selves together, journalism and entertainment, and became an entertainment journalist. That so, uh, and, yeah, the last 20 years of my life were working for several websites in Hollywood, doing interviews, going to junkets and getting flown all over the place and uh, working on websites and doing that. And it was fun, but I wasn't doing my own stuff, just writing about other people's movies and stuff. But I did enjoy it. And I, you know, was a journalism major, so I was able to do it. Um and that was the last entity, you know, the last time I redid myself, reformed myself. But uh, I retired from that uh, at the end of last year because the entertainment industry has changed so radically uh, since the pandemic and as well as just uh, with online stuff, everything's streaming now. Uh, a lot of things are not in movie theaters. Uh, journalists are handling press a whole different way, you know, the the publicists are handling press a whole different way. Yeah, that's and it for got, sure. Yeah, yeah it got to the point, exactly. I got to the point where um, I had, when I had moved to Albuquerque uh, back here, because I'm a native New Mexican, I moved back home, basically, although I grew up in Carlsbad, where the Carlsbad Caverns are. Uh, I went to school here, so I, I had friends here. I came back here in uh, 2014, 
uh, they were showing screenings here. They were having screenings here, and press was always invited to these early screenings, so I could still do my job from here. All I had to do was uh, either either Zoom interviews or phone interviews, and it was working fine. And then the pandemic hit, and uh, it was fine for a while because everything was on TV, and they allowed us to watch as journalists everything early. And then that stopped. So the, the job, one of my websites folded, and so the job just disappeared. So I decided at the end of last year to retire from doing that, and I went back to my books, and that's when I put the final polish and finished Futurist Rex. Ha. That explains so the timing. I, I've, I've uh, yeah, worn many hats. I've been a, a network executive, ran the story department, uh, the manager of the story department, at CBS uh, for God, many years, like 10 years, and, uh, you know, re- reviewing scripts, uh, meeting with the development executives, and then they went and talked to the writers. So we're basically sitting in a hole in the basement with like maybe one window reading scripts all day. <laughs> that's, and, that's an interesting life. I mean, it. Uh... Yeah, it. Yeah. You, you, well, you kind of learn what not to do, mm-hmm. and then you learn. Yeah, and then once in a while there's a good one and you learn what to do. So uh, that was interesting. And um, when I was writing Zone, uh, I was still working at CBS. So it was a they, – they all got together and decided it wasn't a conflict of interest. So I was able to keep my job while well, I was good, writing Well, that's good because that's, that's an issue. <laughs> well, I wasn't – well, I wasn't in – charge of buying uh anything you know i wasn't somebody who could buy tv shows i just simply gave my opinion and somebody else uh bought them that wasn't us so they decided that i that wasn't anything that was going to be a conflict so that was okay but uh yeah lots of things and the usual writer's um problem with Selling something and the show gets canceled. I can't tell you how many times that <sighs> that has happened. Oh yeah, yeah. I, our our friend uh, uh, novelist S. P. Hendrick bewails uh-huh. constantly about how they'd mm. bought a girl from Uncle script from her, and next day, just about, they'd canceled the show. Yeah, She's that happens paid, a lot. That yeah. or you get your guy, you know, your person who's the showrunner gets canned and everything that he's bought is canned with him or her. Mm. Right. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it, you're it, sitting there. This is the Hollywood. Everybody out there listening. This is the insider bad side of Hollywood. But yeah, you you were so happy and you, maybe you've written two or three drafts of it and it's supposed to be shot. That happened to me a couple of times. Oh, no. And then then the show's canceled or the or the showrunner is canned. And uh, I don't know why they had to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but many times they would just get rid of everything that guy had or gal had bought. Well, they were tainted and, somehow with their bad luck, or or yeah. they just didn't. They they decided at that point that they no longer trusted the showrunner's opinion or judgment. Yeah, there you and go. Discarded there everything you go. that he'd made decisions about. Yeah, there so, you go. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it'll it'll rip you apart. Hollywood will rip you apart and spit you out. So. You just have to learn to ride with the punches, but that that was hard because there there were many other shows I would have written for, you know, and I did write for. It just didn't get on. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, I think that even happened to Dorothy one or two times. I'm, I'm sure, sure, I'm it, sure did. it did. It must have. I'm sure it did. Yeah, especially in the 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 start of her career, you know, before she really got oh yeah established, she must have must have had that happen to her a whole bunch of times. 
I would I would imagine, yeah. But it was so it was more difficult. There are so many. I'm so gratified when I see the huge number of women working in the industry today behind the camera. You can see a whole show if you look at the credits, and it's all women. The 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 DP is a woman. The you know. Uh, the store, you know, all the showrunners are women, and they're not. And these are action shows; these aren't some little frilly, girly show. I was just these, writing about a short subject the other day, and you know, I went through the credits and had to say that you know, the only male name in the credits was Jake the Dog. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that got me. That was so funny. Yeah, that's about it. Uh, and it may be may have been Jake Ant for all we know. You know? <laughs> no, well, I mean, it's el, el perro de pro, producción. So there we are. Yeah. Anyway. In Dorothy's era, there were only a few Margaret Armin and a few other uh, women who were writing something other than either comedy or, which is nothing wrong with that, but or uh, something they considered lady stuff. You know, uh, there weren't that many. And um, well, my Star era, Trek I, had. I Star Trek had Sherry Lewis and um, Jean Lucet yeah. OSD, and um, oh yeah, those are the ones I can think. But of. I mean, as a, as a whole, you know, if you look at the whole industry, it wasn't oh, as yeah. many. And uh, and then my era, a few more, but it's just broken wide open now, and uh, I'm happy for that. I wish I was still working in it now, but <laughs> but it's still amazing, and I'm real happy whenever I see all that. It's just finally and not that it's equal you know it'll never be and maybe these women aren't getting the shows they want to do or something but at least uh there is a ton of them out there and they're working and that's wonderful i'm just dorothy would be thrilled you know (laughs) thank you thank you lynn barker author Mm -hmm. of futurist rex with dc fontana thank you for coming to the show I really enjoyed it. One thing, um, I'm going to Bubonicon, believe it or not, which is the Albuquerque convention that's the largest here in town. Uh, I don't know why they named it after the bubonic plague, but uh, there's an old story about that. But I'm not a guest because I I told them I wanted to come too late, so I'm a visitor. But I'm going to be there, and I want to go to some other conventions and talk about the book and other well, things. Well, if, so. if you want to come to LostCon, we can set you up. When is it? <laughs> Uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, we we, we know that the, we know the fan guests of honor really really well. Ah. Uh, anyway, I will definitely uh, make an attempt to talk to you about that. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lynn. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye. You have been listening to episode 246 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of the Event Horizon for Saturday, September 2, 2022. Our guest this evening has been Lynn Barker, co-author of the new book Futurus Rex. The other author of this book is the late D.C. Fontana. Futurus Rex represents her last published work. This episode will air again tomorrow, September 3rd, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and again on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m., 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all the airtimes have passed, you'll be able to download this episode as a podcast from iTunes, Stitcher, Pandora, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and from our own website at sci-fi.radio. Sci-fi.radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. If you enjoy programming like what you just heard, 
please visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and give generously. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was sci-fi illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. The engineer was sci-fi illustrator. The captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. Sci-Fi.Radio's The Event Horizon is copyright 2022 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.Radio, it's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.